We praise you, and I thank you for that amazing song. And I'd like to continue it as a prayer, Lord God, that, that we would see you. Preaching about you is a little terrifying for me, because I always feel such a temptation and such a desire that comes from this world to turn you into a little platitude that we could take and apply to our life and feel better about ourselves. But you are so much more. You are everything. So simple, and yet we've made this world so complex, and this world is complex. And so, God, I pray that you would... I, I guess, I'm just asking, God, that you would help us to see you. I know that you are one, but, Lord God, we are many. We're divided, even within ourselves. So help us see you and be one as you are one. In Jesus' name, I'm asking that you would help us to preach. Thank you, Lord God, for what you showed us last week, that the blood of the Lamb is in those cups of wrath in Revelation chapter 15. I pray that you would show us more now. Show us yourself. In Jesus' name, amen. About 20 years ago, my wife woke me up early, and she said, Peter, I just had a vision that was a kind of a new thing for her at the time. I've never had a, a vision, but over the years I've come to trust what uh, my wife says, usually, unless it's regarding shopping and the credit card, I, I trust usually, and also what God reveals to her. She said, Peter, when I woke up in the corner of the room, there were these dark clouds. And, and then as I watched, the clouds split, and the sun came out from behind the clouds in our room. But you see, just before that, I woke up from a dream. I woke up from the most clear and real dream that it, maybe it was more real than this world. I saw thousands of people descending in a, in a, in a long line down a spiral staircase. And, and the, people, the people were like zombies. They were like the walking dead. All along the descending line of the walking dead, there were demons. They were poking. They were harassing. They were trying to hurt the, these people. And yet the people didn't even move. They hardly even flinched because they were, well, they were used to it. It was like normal for them. And all at once I saw this woman. And her eyes, Susan said, they weren't cloudy like everyone else. They were wide open. She was wide awake. She was, she was alive. And she kept protesting. She kept saying, something's wrong here. Something's not right here. I'm not meant for here. Something's, something's not right. This continued. But, but at the bottom of the staircase, there was this one huge demon, a beast with eight arms. And it would take these zombies and throw them into the lake of the fire and they would be consumed. And then the beast threw the woman in the lake of fire. But she wasn't consumed. Susan said she, she kept protesting. I, I'm not supposed to be here. Something's not right here. I'm not meant for here. It absolutely infuriated the beast, said Susan. He went into a rage. He was trying to push her down into the fire, but each time he'd push her down, she'd pop back up and say, I'm not supposed to be here. I'm not supposed to be here. He, he kept pushing her down, and she kept rising up, and then Susan said, as I watched this, she gradually began to float out of reach of this beast demon's arms. And then she said it was like the whole lake, it kind of like shifted. 
and she floated into this area of cool, clear water. She said the water was just like at peace, like, like glass. On the shores, I began to see vegetation, lush with life, said Susan. And then I saw him. I saw Jesus. He reached in and pulled the woman out of the water, and he stood her right next to him. And Peter, she was absolutely gorgeous. She was like made of gold, gold refined by fire, spun gold. And I remember Susan said this. She said, Peter, I don't even know what spun gold is, but that's what she was, spun gold. She was radiant. Then Jesus looked at her and he said, sweetheart, you were meant for here. And then Susan said, Peter, what was that? And I said, have you ever read Revelation 15? And she said something like, you know me. <laughs> Who was that woman? And what were all those zombies? Well, this is Revelation 15. We began preaching on it last week in Revelation 14. Remember, we saw the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, and from it a river, a river that filled the land to the depths of a horse's bridle, a, a river of, that filled the, land, filled the land forming a sea, a sea of blood that's wine and wine that's blood, a sea of the knowledge of the glory of the Lord that covered the whole land. Now chapter 15, verse 1. Then I saw another sign in heaven, writes John, Great and amazing, seven angels, messengers, with seven plagues, wounds or stripes, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished, Taleo. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass with harps. Kitara is the Greek. It should be, it's where we get our word guitar. I looked it up. It was a seven-stringed instrument with a sounding box. That's a guitar, not a harp. Uh, see, uh, there's, they're around with the, these uh, guitars, the guitars of God in their hands, and they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you. For your righteous acts, your judgments have been revealed. After this I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened. And out of the sanctuary came the seven angelos, the angels with the seven wounds, clothed in pure bright linen with golden sashes around their chests, which is how Jesus appeared at the start of the vision. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath, the thumos, the passion, the anger of God, who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with the smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven wounds of the seven angels were finished to Leo. I then, then, then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the passion of God. In verse 8, John wrote, no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven wounds of the seven messengers that look like Jesus were finished to Leo. 
And yet, as we'll see in Revelation chapter 16, the next chapter, when the seven wounds are finished, it would appear that everyone is dead. 2 Corinthians 5.14, Paul writes something really weird. For the love of Christ compels us because we have concluded this. We have concluded that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. One has died for all. Therefore, all have died. That would make everyone a, a zombie. <laughs> and yet, we'd think it, it, was, it was normal. But what if death died? Perhaps the death of death is, is life like eternal life that can't die. Verse 8, no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven wounds were finished. On a tree in the garden on Mount Calvary at the end of the sixth day of the week, sixth day of creation, sixth hour of the day, Jesus is crucified. Sky grows black, earth shakes, he lifts his head and he cries, it is finished. <laughs> Teleo, same, same word. The curtain in the temple separating the people from the abode of God rips from the top to the bottom. Verse 8, none could enter the sanctuary until the seven wounds were finished. So what is the sanctuary and what would it mean to enter? Naos, the Greek word translated sanctuary, sometimes temple, it comes from a verb that means to dwell. It was where the presence of God would dwell. As we've seen, it would literally rest on top of the mercy seat which covered the ark containing the law behind the curtain. According to Jewish tradition, the sanctuary was built on the very spot that God breathed his breath into dust, making the human soul or psyche in the Garden of Eden as you know, humanity was exiled from that garden when we took knowledge of the good from the tree in the middle of that garden, and God placed two cherubim, or cherubim, plural cherubim, at the entrance to, to guard the way to the garden. In the sanctuary, on top of the Ark of the Covenant, God commanded Moses to place two golden cherub, cherubim, uh, guarding the way to the, to the to the throne of God, or the, the presence of God, the presence of God in, in his garden, it would seem. In the gospel, Jesus said this. He said, destroy this naos, this temple, and in three days I will rebuild it. And he was speaking of the temple of his body. In John 15, Jesus says this, abide in me, and I in you. You abide in an abode. <laughs> he is your sanctuary, and you're his. In a few chapters, we'll witness the new Jerusalem descending on Mount Zion. It comes down on the spot where God makes Adam, that is humanity. It looks like Eden, and it contains the tree of life. Uh, it's shaped, this new Jerusalem is shaped like the stone sanctuary, only massive way bigger, and it's alive. God dwells there with his people of which it's constructed, living, living stones. We'll, we'll read that there is no sanctuary in the city, for God Almighty and the Lamb are the city's sanctuary, and the city is God's 
sanctuary. We are the heavenly sanctuary, God's temple, God's body, and God's bride. We're the sanctuary. Surprise. Verse 8. No one could enter the sanctuary until the seven wounds were finished. And check this out. The sanctuary, that inner room in which God dwells, it's not of this age. This ion in Greek. It's ionios, meaning of God's age, and God created all things. In Hebrews chapter 9, we learn that the outer room in front of the inner sanctuary is symbolic of the present ion, the present age, but that Jesus goes behind the curtain obtaining an ionios, an eternal redemption. For he has appeared once for all at the end of the ions, the end of the ions, the end of time, uh, the ages, to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. What I'm trying to say is that the sanctuary is not only a special place, but it's a special time, or the absence of time, or the presence of all, of all uh, time. It was a chunk of eternity in our space and time. In Hebrews 4, we read that to believe is to enter that rest, God's rest, and then that rest is described as the seventh day, when God rested from all his labor, for everything is finished. Everything is is good. So what would it be like to abide in the sanctuary? Well, you're the sanctuary. Do you feel at home in yourself? Verse 8, no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven wounds were finished. No one. And yet this is weird. In verse 2, we read about some folks that seem to be in the sanctuary now. They're singing and playing the kitara, the guitars of God, and singing the song of the Lamb. They look just like the 144,000 that we met in the last chapter, the 144,000 with the name of the Father and of the Lamb upon their foreheads. The 144,000 that play guitars and sing the new song, the 144,000 that are the Israel of God, uh, the church, and these 144,000 stand before the throne, uh, the throne that is in the sanctuary on the other side of the sea of glass. We read about it in chapter 4, verse 5, and before which are seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth like seven angelos or seven messengers. They sing the song of eternity that we encountered in chapter 5 when John hears every creature in heaven and earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is within them praising the Father and the Lamb. They sing that eternal song but now they're singing it in time and so it's always new where eternity touches time. They follow the Lamb wherever He goes as members of one body, one dancing body. Remember, we talked about that. We noted that all the members of a dancing body are perfectly ordered and yet entirely free. For every member freely submits to the rhythm of the song, the logos of the song. In chapter 11, you remember the seventh trumpet was blown, and the ark was seen within the temple. The ark is a representation of the free will of God, and the temple is us, the sanctuary. We noted that if we really had free will, 
we would be entirely unrestrained, unrestrained by any law exterior to ourselves. In other words, we wouldn't shoot on ourselves all the time. We'd never deliberate between choices. Should I step here or should I step there? Pastor, what should I do? We'd constantly do what we want and want what we do. We would be the uncaused cause. We'd be God. Or we would be like the body of God, the dancing body of God. If we think we are God and so take the life that is God, everything dies. Zombies everywhere. But if we surrender to God and receive the life that is God, we start dancing. Jesus is the free will of God, and we are his body. A dance is perfect order and perfect freedom. You know, it's also an incredible amount of work. If you ever spent much time dancing, it's, it's a lot of work, but, but, but probably... If, unless someone was making you do it for some high school play or something, you considered it to be rest. You experience it as rest, and so we call it play. Have you noticed that, that we never say, can you work the guitar? Right? No one says that. We ask, hey, can you play the guitar? When my children were little, they spent most of their time playing in, in the backyard. And one day it hit me, hey, all their play is what I call work. I mean, they freely did what I forced myself, made myself do, but, but they didn't call it work. They, they called it play. If you've had little kids, you know this. It's kind of weird at first, but you realize they, they like to play house. My kids played church. Poor kids. Wrote sermons for me often. In the sandbox, they made roads. They made roads and houses and cities. They had a play lawnmower and a play vacuum sweeper, but they didn't just vacuum and mow. They dance mowed and dance vacuumed. I mean, they seemed to constantly be singing and dancing, and they expended just a ton of energy. Technically, that's work. Force applied over distance, that's, that's work. But we called it play. They did everything that Susan and I did, but they had fun. They didn't work to live. They lived, and so they worked. They played. And... They seem to be very at home in themselves. You know, when God put Adam and Eve in the garden, they didn't do nothing. They were to be fruitful and multiply. They were to till the garden and keep it. And I think it was fun. It was paradise. They were like little children at play in their father's garden. Jesus said that we must become like little children to enter the father's kingdom. It was paradise until Adam and Eve believed a lie. You know, children of a loving father really have it so good. The only problem is that they don't know 
that they have it so good. The problem is that at a certain point, they begin to want to grow up. It was the father of lies in the body of the snake that said, hey Eve, wouldn't you like to be like God? Hey, take that fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the middle of the garden and you can use it to make yourself in the image of God. Now God the Father had already said that he was making man, male and female, in his, his own image, but even that first Adam didn't know that the word of the Father, the word of God, was good. Well, at one point, my kids, I think it was usually around two, three, four, at one point, my children were children at play in their father's garden. And at times, we'd have to hire a babysitter, maybe for a couple hours, maybe for a weekend while Susan and I got away. Imagine if the babysitter said something like this to, to, to my kids. Hey, John, that's a nice road that you've made there in the sand but Elizabeth's is better. Actually, hers is good, and yours is bad. See, I have knowledge of good roads and bad roads. So from now on, I'm gonna judge your roads, and judge your cities, and judge your dance vacuuming, and your, your lawn mowing vacuuming, and give you a grade. When your parents come home, they'll reward the one that gets the best grade and punish the one that gets the worst grade. Actually, the one that gets the best grade will live <laughs> and the other will die. An endless death. What would happen? Well, if my children believed the lie, my children might make roads and mow the lawn, but they would become beasts. They would begin to bite and devour each other. They would compete with each other. Uh, they wouldn't love me. They would begin to, uh, to, to despise me and hate each other. They would believe that life is the survival of the fittest. They wouldn't be made in the image of a loving father. They'd be made in the image of, of a beast. They, they, they'd die. I mean, the light would go out of their eyes. The dance would go out of their step. They'd be like, they'd be like the, walking, the walking dead. And you may say, well, Peter, that would never happen. But don't you see, it has happened. And it's happening all the time. This entire world is like covered with a, a river of lies and it's all one lie. You're your own creator. You're you our own savior. You're, you are your own redeemer. So you must take knowledge and make yourself in the image of God. And God grades on a curve. Some of his kids will pass and some will fail. You know, sometimes we even say this. Life is the survival of the fittest. It's competition. Yet any honest biologist will tell you life is not competition. Life is cooperation. Life is not the survival of the fittest. Life is the mutual sacrifice of the fittest. Competition explains the limits of life, why one life will bite and devour another life, but it can explain life itself. One molecule cooperating with another molecule. One cell sacrificing for another cell. 
One body part freely bleeding into another body part in one happy dancing body. 1 Corinthians 12, 13. In one spirit, which means breath, in one spirit you were baptized into one body. We see competition explains beasts, why one life might consume another life. But competition cannot explain Jesus, who is the man in the image of God. Let me say this before we go on. I see no theological, philosophical, or biblical problem with the idea that my body evolved from the beast over millions and millions of years as we measure time. It's not a body of flesh that makes me a man. It's the Spirit of God breathed into my flesh and in which I'm baptized at the end of the sixth day that makes me a man in the image of God. Well, Satan doesn't want me to be a man (laughs) made in the image of God. At the end of chapter 12, we saw him go to war with the little brothers and sisters of Jesus. That's us. He battled them. He battles us with the river of lies. And then you may remember when that didn't go totally well, he called up the beast in order to help him lie. He wants to shape you in his own image. He wants to name you. He wants to write his number on your head, 666, the number of the beast, the number of humanity on the sixth day of creation, not yet finished in the image of God. Well, anyway, just imagine if the babysitter said to John, Elizabeth, Becky, and Coleman, you'll receive a grade on all your play. Some of you will pass, and some of you will fail. Uh, Some of you will enter into life. Some of you will earn. Some of you will earn life, and, and some of you won't. I think it would turn my kids into beasts, little beasts. Restless beast. For the moment you, you take life, the life dies. And you can take life in so many different ways. It's not just murder. It's the way you treat people. But if you take their life, the, the life dies. And then what happens? You try to get more life. You take more and more. Ravid, like a ravenous beast. You take life and everything dies, including you, a restless zombie beast. And imagine if the babysitter continued saying something like this. And, John Elizabeth, Becky, and Coleman, if you pass the test... Your father will love you. That would turn my children into little harlots. Porne in Greek. I mean, they would compete for my love. They would try to purchase my love with deeds. They would try to earn my love and so be unable to receive my love and love in return. The lie would turn my kids into restless little harlots for if you must pay for love, love is no longer free, which means it's no longer love. You've just crucified love and love is life. Sometimes I think men are particularly tempted to be beasts and women are particularly tempted to be whores. And we're all tempted to each. And it appears that we can become what we think we are, at least for a time. And yet we'll be endlessly restless because that's not who we truly are in eternity. I don't know about you, but sometimes I just do not feel at home in me. 
I mean, sometimes I just cannot stand me. I get just absolutely sick of me. Sometimes, especially around 2 or 3 in the morning, I'll wake up and I just can't seem to endure my own skin. I get caught in like this spiral in my psyche. I, I think, and this is usually what I think, I think I don't know how to make life work. I don't know how to make the sermon work. I don't know how to make the church work. I don't know how to make my children work. I, I, I try to take life. I try to take life and make it work, and it, and it doesn't work. And then I'll think, I don't know how to get this person to love. A pastor struggles with this all the time. I don't know how to get this person to love that person. And, and in fact, in the process, I think they're both going to end up hating me. I don't know how to earn love. I don't know how to earn Love. So, so maybe, you see, at that moment, I'm believing a lie that I have to take life and earn love. God is love. And Jesus is the life. Maybe I can't stand me because that's not the real me. If I can't stand me, that probably indicates that me is not who I am. Maybe I can't stand me because that's not the real me. Maybe I can't stand the beast that I'm trying to be. Listen to what we read in the last chapter. The smoke of their torment, their anguish, goes up for ages and ages, the ages, and they have no rest day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of its name. Maybe I can't rest because I've let the beast name me and form me into its image, and that's not me. Maybe I trust me is salvation rather than God is salvation, Yeshua. Maybe I think I'm my own creator, savior, and redeemer, the Antichrist, which means imitation Christ. Maybe it's the mercy of God, which is also the wrath of God, that won't let me rest in my own wicked illusions, that won't let me remain as I think I am, a beast on the sixth day of creation and not the man on the seventh. We see the folks standing by the sea playing guitars, dancing, and singing. They're no longer in the sixth day of creation. They've entered the sanctuary. And all their work is rest, and all their obedience is, is free. They're, they're not beasts. They're men. They're no longer harlots, but the bride. They're not the walking dead. They have entered life. They've, they've conquered, and this is the way it says it, the, it says they've conquered the number of the beast's name, and they have God's name. I am. They sing the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. The, the song is entirely about God and, and not at all about them. It's like they've entirely lost themselves and then found themselves singing and outrageously happy. They are entirely compelled and constrained and animated by love. I saw this week, uh, Mark, Mark said, Hey, Peter, you know, I just can't figure out if I'm one of the people standing on the side of the sea or one of the walking dead marked by the beast. Me too. In chapter 13, 7, we read this. Listen closely. An authority was given to the beast over every tribe and people and language and nation, every nation. And all who dwell on the earth will worship it. 
Well, who doesn't dwell on the earth? Can you, like, abide some, someplace else? All who dwell on the earth will worship it, whose names or name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. Does that mean that all who dwell on the earth will worship it except those that have their name written in the Lamb's book of life? It doesn't say except. Or does it mean all who abide on the earth worship the beast and do not have their name written in the Lamb's book of life? I wonder if part of you could abide on the earth like dust and a part of you could abide in heaven like spirit. A few verses later, we read this. It, the beast from the land, the false prophet, causes all, all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead. All. No exceptions are mentioned. And then it says this. It is the number of man. Not a man, but man in the Greek. It is the number of man, and man's number is 666. You know, it would be so cool if the mark of the beast was like some freaky weird tattoo that a Romanian dictator offered to you in 2027. Because if it was, you could just say no. Just say no to the mark of the beast. Pretty simple. But what if the mark is the fact that you've simply let things like governments, religions, and institutions of this world name you? You've let them convince you that you must take life or earn love. Uh, that you've let them convince you that you are a self-made man. And so what's happened? You've put your faith in Mises rather than Jesus. That's called sin. And the soul that sins shall surely die. Literally dying, you will die. And God says this, the day you eat of it, you will die. That day is the sixth day. In chapter 19, the living word will cut the flesh from all men. Not some, all. I, I, I literally, like, this is almost embarrassing to say, but I literally make my body, make my flesh, by taking life and excreting death. It's called food. Like a beast. That's how my flesh exalts itself. Solomon wrote that God is testing us that we might see that we are but beasts. If I'm honest, I really look at good, good at myself, I'm, I'm, I'm fairly uh, beastly and, and whorish, fairly restless and wanton. But now, but now listen to the singers on the side of the sea. Listen to what they say. Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. We just read that the beast was given authority over all the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you. All nations, under the authority of the beast and marked by the beast, all nations will come and worship you for your righteous acts, your judgments have been revealed. We already read that every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the earth, John heard singing to the praise of the, of the Father and the Lamb, will soon hear the voice from the throne say, look, I make all things new, and we'll read that the nations will walk by the light of the Lord, and the kings of the earth, who had been horns on the beast, will bring their glory into the sanctuary. It's utterly shocking at the end of the Revelation. 
And so it seems that I'm a beast. And the very body of the man, Jesus, it seems that I'm something of a, a harlot. And I'm the spotless bride. It seems that I'm both. Or at least I was a beast and I'm becoming a man in the image of God. Or I was a harlot that discovers she's a bride. Maybe I was a false man and I'm becoming real. Maybe I'm a sinner getting filled with grace. Maybe I'm the woman in Susan's vision. The church. Verse 8, no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven wounds of the seven angels that, that look just like Jesus were finished. Taleo. No one could enter the sanctuary, but the dancing, singing guitar players are in the sanctuary or are the sanctuary. So kind of there's an obvious question. How did they get there? Well, they must have passed through that sea of glass and fire like the restless woman in Susan's vision who finally stood beside Jesus as spun gold. Scripture says that our faith is tested by fire, like gold is tested and refined by fire. So who we are somehow must be like this fabric of gold, spun gold out of the warp and woof of this world that turns into the, the new self or something. But, but then what is the sea of glass mingled with fire? In chapter 4, we saw a sea of glass around the throne and the seven torches of fire. It must refer to that. Once God judged the earth with a flood of, of water, and Scripture claims that there will also be a flood of fire. It must refer to that. Israel passed through the Red Sea following a pillar of fire, and in this way, God's judgment saved Israel from the Egyptians, and as they stood on the other side of the sea, they sang the song of Moses. It must refer to that. In the temple, there was a molten sea, which was a huge metal basin placed between the sanctuary and the fiery altar. The priests would wash themselves in the sea so that they wouldn't be killed by the glory of God when they entered the sanctuary. In the temple, God's judgment showed Israel that he, he not only saved them from the Egyptians, he saved them from their sin. It must also refer to that. In baptism, God reveals that he not only saves us from the Egyptians, he not only saves us from sin, he saves us from ourselves, the me that I have made. It must definitely refer to that. In all four Gospels, we read that Jesus came to baptize, but not just with water, fire. Baptism symbolizes dying with Christ and rising with Christ. It symbolizes the fact that your sins are washed away and you are inviting the fire to come and fill the tabernacle or sanctuary of your soul. It's a public statement that you agree with the judgment of God. The judgment of God is Jesus. And you know his name, Yeshua, means Yahweh, God, is salvation. God's judgment is a knife that cuts to the division of soul and spirit. It cuts to the division of the beast you have made yourself to be and the child of God that you truly are. It cuts to the division of the beast and the man. It cuts to the division 
of the harlot and the bride. It cuts to the division of Mises and Jesus. You see, if you believe, if you honestly believe God is salvation, you can no longer believe you are salvation. That's a clean cut. In one moment, at one time, you, you cannot believe both. It cuts to the division of the old man and the new man. It cleanses you of the old self and purifies the new. Last Sunday at communion, I, I said the judgment of God will burn you right down to a child at play in your father's garden. The judgment of God is absolute mercy that burns our sin like fire. Until we believe God's judgment, you have been forgiven. Until we believe God's judgment, and then the burning blood tastes like the sweetest of old wine. Last week I told you how in a moment at this conference in Canada, God revealed to me that I'd gone into the ministry because I hated the church. Because <laughs> I wanted vengeance on the church. I wanted blood for blood. I wanted to take life to make my life. I was a beast and a restless beast. And yet, I told you that God's wrath was absolute mercy. When he revealed it, he didn't, there was no condemnation. In fact, he wept for me, through me, in me, with me. He literally liberated me from myself. Then later that evening, and I've told you about this too in the past, he literally pinned me to the floor and he showed me that he was everywhere and everywhere loving me. I think he like baptized me in holy fire. I thought I was gonna die. I really did. And I was so excited about dying, I literally could not stop worshiping. I no longer was asking, what's wrong with me? All I could think about is what's right with him. And you know what's right with him? How he is always and everywhere loving me. One day you will not be able to stop singing about him. He is everywhere and every wind loving you. And you see, our songs will come together in this symphony of praise that is the eternal song that sounds around all creation and undergirds it and makes all things new. It was the most amazing experience of my life. And here's the most amazing part of all. When it was, when it was over, that, however that, long, that few hours, when it was over, I was like totally home in me. I was at home in me. I was not sick of me. I thoroughly loved me. I mean, I had compassion on, on me. I was absolutely unable to worry about me or anyone else. And every night, as soon as my head hit the pillow, I fell asleep. I had entered his rest. And yet that didn't mean that I would do nothing. Actually, I did everything, everything that I did before. Mow the lawn, work in the garden, write sermons, go to meetings, but now it was like I was dancing. I was a child at play in my father's garden. I knew I couldn't make myself good. I couldn't make myself good, I could only be good. I knew I couldn't make myself in the image of God, I could only be the image of God.
I knew that I had nothing to defend and everything for which uh, to be grateful. I, I knew the good. It was my Father's absolutely sovereign and merciful judgment. It was at home in the sanctuary of my soul. Th that experience, that, that experience of living in his rest, it lasted for about three or four weeks and then it wore off. <laughs> I mean, I knew it, so I preach it. I knew it in my mind. But my heart, all my beings still struggled somehow. Check this out. The Israelites sang the song of Moses after they were baptized in the sea. But then after a few weeks, they stopped singing and dancing. They believed God as salvation, but they also didn't believe God as salvation. They trusted their heavenly Father in his word, and yet they also didn't. You know, when my kids would have a hard time trusting me, nothing seemed to help quite as much as taking them on a journey. Even better, taking them on an adventure where they would encounter a lot of trials and struggles. Even better, I'd take them camping. In the wilderness, they'd stop trusting themselves and their knowledge. And once again, they'd start trusting me. In fact, they'd snuggle up next to me in the tent and remember that I loved them. After Israel passed through the Red Sea, God took them camping in the wilderness, in tents. He traveled with them in a tent called the tabernacle that became the temple. God's wrath is against anything that would separate you from him, and his sanctuary is a tent in which you snuggle, you snuggle up close next to each other. You rest in him, and he rests in you. The book of Hebrews says, strive to enter his rest. And then it says that Israel was unable to enter that rest because of unbelief, and so they died in the wilderness and did not enter rest, the, the promised land, that place. I've wondered if they were like those zombies in Susan's dream. Those Israelites didn't enter, and yet they had not yet seen the seventh bowl of wrath. They didn't enter, and yet they do enter in the end. Through Ezekiel, God says that he will raise Israel from their graves and bring them into the land. All Israel, he says. You know, God does remarkable things with dust and ashes. Moses was one of those that died in the wilderness because of unbelief, and yet he shows up brand new on the Mount of Transfiguration in the heart of the Promised Land with Jesus shining, glowing. Dust and ashes, you see, is not the end. <laughs> Jesus is, is the end. Well, this is my point. You can enter his rest now. I think that's what baptism symbolizes. And you can live from his rest every day. I'm bummed that we don't have time to read this. There's just too much. But the next thing that happens is that the seven angels pour the seven wombs, the plagues, pour the seven bowls of, of the passion of God. They, they pour it upon the earth. Remember, seven is the number of the days of time, and it's the number of your days on your journey through time. You see, God is taking you camping in tents tabernacles, 
of flesh. Hopefully you were baptized, and if you weren't baptized, you want to get baptized, well, you can just come down to the river with us today and, and be baptized. You were baptized, and now you're on a journey, but every seventh day you come here and drink from a bowl of wine that's blood and blood that's wine. It is also the judgment of God. Well, in chapter 16, the angels uh, pour out the bowls of blood that's wine and wine that's blood on the surface of the earth in the days of time. At the first bowl, everyone gets sores. <laughs> Have you ever had a sore? Have you? They wound your flesh, and they wound Christ's flesh. That's where they come from, according to the vision. Your wounds match his wounds, and somehow reveal mercy. At the second bowl, every soul dies in the sea. Every soul dies in the sea. It doesn't say every soul that's in the sea dies. The Greek is every soul dies in, in the sea. But if you're a believer, you already died in the sea at baptism. At the third bowl, the rivers and springs become blood. An angel cries, you have given them blood to drink. It's what they deserve. Every time you come to this table, God gives you blood to drink. I guess it's what you deserve. You took blood, and he gives his blood. It burns the beast, and it sets you, the child of God, free. At the fourth bowl, people are judged by the light. At the fifth bowl, people wash, weep and gnash their teeth in darkness. At the sixth bowl, all the kings in all the earth bring all of their armies to a place called Arm Armageddon. Nobody's quite sure what that means, but, but the word means something like mountain of the crowd or mountain of the assembly. I think that place is Jerusalem where we all go to war with the lamb and the beast and the harlot together, nail them to a tree in the middle of the garden. You know, John always pictures Jesus as enthroned here on his cross. At the seventh bowl, a voice cries from the throne, it is done. It is finished. It is accomplished. It is ended in eternity, and it is done in time. It's the judgment of God that burns you right down to a child at play in your father's garden. And yet you know you know something that you previously did not know. You know the good. You know God is good. And his judgment is life constantly given to you. So you can enter his rest and live from his rest right now. It's eternal life now. People always say, what do I do? P Pastor Peter, okay, that's all cool and everything, but what do I do? What do I do? Well, this is the best answer that I think I, I can give you. If you want to be good, try to be good. Act good. Then every seventh day, come to the sanctuary and sit before the judgment of God. Drink the cup. And it will expose and it will burn the beast. Just let him burn. Just let him burn. It will destroy the beast and reveal a man or woman of solid gold. And you'll know it's gold, for when you see it, you will only be grateful. So grateful that you will like lose yourself and find yourself singing the song of the Lamb. Actually, you never have to stop singing that song. 
You can live your whole life as a dance, dance to the rhythm of that song. So, so what do I do? Number one, be baptized in the sea of glass and fire. And number two, live your life in communion with God until you are finally at home in yourself, the temple with him. He's already in your tent. What do I do? Well, it reminds me of how my son learned to play the guitar. One Christmas, Coleman got an electric guitar, and he, he tried and he tried and he tried to play. You know, it's hard telling your left hand what to do to form the chords, while at the same time telling your right hand to move, you know, up and down in rhythm in just the, the perfect time as you sing. And it doesn't do any good for dad to say something like, well, try harder, Coleman, concentrate, work harder at the edge of your guitar, try harder. Just makes you more self-conscious. Well, I got the chords to this old Elvis Presley song that I liked, and I showed Coleman where to put his fingers on the neck of the guitar. I described this, this strum, but it all sounded really bad until Coleman discovered a secret. And so he said this, he would, he would always say this. He would say, Dad, you sing, and I'll play along, I'll play along. You know, they're constantly singing in heaven. They're singing about the glory of the judgment of God. They're singing, and well, maybe we can play along. I, I don't sing well, but when I sang, Coleman's fingers, they began to like dance. His right hand would strum in rhythm. His left hand would change chords at just the right time, all because he gladly surrendered to the word of his father as I sang, your kisses lift me higher like the sweet song of a choir. You light my morning sky with burning love. I'm just a hunk of hunk of burning love. I'm just a hunk of hunk of burning love. That's the word of the Father. That's the word of your Father. On the night he was betrayed by us, he took bread and he broke it, saying, this is my body given to you. Take and eat. And in the same way, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the covenant in my blood, poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Drink of it, all of you, and do it in remembrance of me. This is the judgment of God. This is burning love. This is the rhythm of the song that creates all things, including you. This is the constant reminder of your baptism. You are in this world, but you are not of this world. You are not meant for here. You are being made here because you are meant for there the other side of the sea. What I'm saying is you're not a beast, and you are not a whore. You're the child of God. So believe the gospel and play along. Dark cup is wine, light cup is juice. They're both like a little hunk of burning love.
dreams are now licking my body Won't you help me feel like I'm slipping away It's hard to breathe, my chest is a heaving Lord have mercy, burning a hole where I live So, do you want to be baptized? <laughs> In all four Gospels at the start, Jesus said, I, I, I came to not only baptize with water, but fire. And you know that water represents washing away your sin. And, and then on Pentecost, the church is gathered, all these people in different uh, diff from different places and the Spirit descends like fire and they're baptized in fire and they begin speaking in a common language they begin they begin worshiping in all these different languages and they become one body we're baptized into one body Paul says there's one Lord one faith one baptism baptism so we baptize in the name of the Father Son and the Holy Spirit so if you've if you've been baptized you're baptized in all your life the, you're remembering your baptism and at times the Holy Spirit may show up and just knock your socks off you don't know but being baptized means you agree with the judgment of God you don't determine the judgment of God you agree with the judgment of God, and that means that the rest of your life you also knit. Know, th know this, that, that your father is taking you camping. And who knows what might happen on this adventure. But if one day your tent is destroyed, which it will be, it will be, you don't need to fear, because you'll be home on the other side of the sea. And right now, guess who's in your tent with you? <laughs> the fire. Uh, Zechariah said, on that day, my city, there, there'll, be no, uh, there'll be no wall around this city, but I will be a wall around her, and I will be the glory in her midst. You see, you are a hunk of hunk of burning love. God sings it to you. He is love. And that's what he's making you in his image. So if you'd like to be baptized, we're going down uh, to, to the river. And I know some here are being baptized. Um, you, you don't, once you're baptized, I believe you, it means you agree with the judgment, right? So uh, you don't have to be baptized again. But, it, but if you want to be, you can. I was baptized an infant and then baptized again because I just wanted to remember it. Um, but we'll go down to the river and you can meet uh, Kathleen 
at the entryway and she'll show you to the rock. If you, we, do it, we do it kind of at this cool rock. She'll show you to the rock if you don't know uh, where it is. But um, the whole point, every, if you said, golly, that was a long, confusing sermon, I know, but this is the point. Now, believe the gospel and play along in Jesus' name. Amen.